You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning. Grab a Bible. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Guest, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so and glad to start a new year together. Uh, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to see what God has to say, uh, particularly though this uh, the next four weeks we're going to be in a smaller series, what we're calling our Marks of Maturity. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you and you can turn to page 1089 to follow along with us. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we would love to give you that as a gift so that you can read on your own and follow along with us. As we start today, I want to give you a quote that my high school basketball coach used to, used to tell us all the time. He would say, don't mistake movement for achievement. Don't mistake movement for achievement. And that thought, just because we're doing something, doesn't mean that we are achieving anything. It doesn't mean that we are making progress. And these questions, as we jump into the text, have been on my mind and my heart this week. As we start a new year, as we gather as a church family, as we meet in missional communities, as we make disciples, what makes a disciple? Who are we trying to be as Covenant Hope Church? How do you grow personally in your faith in Christ? How do we achieve a vision of making and starting a disciple-making movement here in Wake Forest Youngsville that spreads all across the world. How do we grow? It boils down to this. How do we grow? How do we grow? And how do we know that we're growing? How do we know it's worth it? Is a question that I think matters to us. We talk about following Christ. We talk about walking in faith. But how do we know we're growing? How do we know it's worth it? This is where our marks of maturity come in. Where we as a church, we want to make mature disciples. And we talk about making mature disciples. That is our aim and that's what we're going to do. Everything we do as a church is going to be filtered through that statement. We exist to make mature disciples who impact their world for Jesus Christ. That's who we are and who we're trying to be. And so when you come to this, Pastor Ryan helped early on in thinking through, if this is who we're trying to be, how do we get there? So let's work backwards. How do we get there? How do we become mature disciples together? And this is where the thoughts of marks of maturity came from. And these marks of maturity are confess, transform, engage, multiply. Confess the truth of the gospel. Be transformed by the power of the gospel. Engage our neighbors our world with the hope of the gospel and ultimately multiply disciples and churches with the mission of the gospel. But these marks of maturity, are, they're not boxes to check off. They're not, hey, I did that. I confessed the gospel. I, I, was, I was changed. I was transformed. Hey, I engaged my neighbor this week. They're not boxes to check off, but rather they should be defining markers of our lives together. We also say that 
It's not just that we confess the truth of the gospel. We confess the truth of the gospel as a family of believers. A family of believers. And so we come to this today not to check off the boxes, but that our marks of maturity, they're not just one step in the process, but they should be what define us. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about our marks of maturity. If you're a guest today, this is a great time for you to check out who we are. Because we're going to talk about who we are trying to be, who I think the Lord is making us to be, and where we're going to go, and the kind of disciples that we want to be. And so, this Sunday, we're talking about confess. We are a family of believers confessing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ individually and collectively. Individually and collectively. Let me focus on a few words as we start this morning. A family... This is something that's done in community. We don't come to this as individuals. We come to this as a family. Yes, we are individuals, and yes, we are a collective, but we are a family. God has purchased us as His people and calls us to unite. And this is, if you remember here, this is why we talk about being a family. It's a priority for us. Our family matters. And we confess... The truth of the gospel. Many of you, and rightly so, probably have a thought of confession as this, I'm going to tell someone about my sin. Although that's a, that's a fine definition, that's not where we're going after. It's more like a statement of what's confessed as a formal religious belief. That we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and His gospel is what saves people and is what transforms us and makes us right with God. We believe it's only that gospel that does that. And so as we come to Revelation 2 this morning, I want us to focus here because it's the last biblical account that we have of the church at Ephesus. And we ended our study in Ephesians back in November. And so now we get to actually see how does the church respond to Paul's words and where do we find them at today and how do we think and respond to God's word. And it's going to help us center the gospel and love Jesus. It's going to help us center the gospel, confess the gospel, and love Jesus. So as we look here in the text, here's what we see. Jesus confronts the church of Ephesus for abandoning their love for him and the gospel. If you're a disciple today, if you have made a profession of faith today, or previously, this is for you. We must love Christ by keeping His gospel at the center of our church family. Keeping the gospel at the center of our church family. As we walk through the text here, there's seven verses, but there's going to be five actions that Jesus takes in the text. Five actions that Jesus takes in text. The text. So the first action that Jesus takes here, we're going to look at verse 1, is Jesus cares for His church. Jesus cares for His church. Look there at verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The apostle John has received the vision. He's writing now uh, this book, and he writes specifically to the church of Ephesus, but John has already talked about the beauty and the glory of our risen Lord Jesus. He's talked about Him in the first chapter, And how he's atoned for our sin and how he was vindicated as Lord by his resurrection. 
It is this Jesus who has been vindicated by his resurrection that speaks to the church at Ephesus. And specifically to the angel of the church at Ephesus, who could be a literal angel or maybe a leader, a pastor in the church. And as we've noted before, when we talk about the church, it's the church is a group of people who have been called out, who are gathering and being the church. The church is not something that we come to every Sunday. We are the church on a daily basis because we've been called out by God. Now, this church at Ephesus was a political and commercial powerhouse. If you remember back to the book of Ephesians, we talked about how powerful Ephesus would have been in the Roman economy. They were also the place where the temple at Diana was and where it was worshipped. This is where a lot of cultic practices were. This was a pagan culture that the gospel had been shared and had exploded in. So there was still tension between them and the culture and how they had to live. And also notice how Jesus speaks to them. He says to the church at Ephesus, it's in the singular, it's not in the plural. Jesus speaks to this church as a single body, as a single group of people, a collective identity. We come not as, yes, as individuals, but we come today being a part of God's family. This is why we take church membership so seriously. This is why we believe it matters to be a part, to give your life under Christ and to other people. It's not just that you have your name on a roll or have your name in the system. That's not what we mean by that. What we mean is that we're actually going to submit our lives to Jesus and we're going to submit our lives to each other so that we can grow into maturity. This is the kind of church that Jesus is speaking to. And this is how we should hear it as well. Now look at how Jesus is actually described. It says, Thus the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is the holder of these stars. And he's the one who walks among these seven lampstands. If you go back to chapter 1, and this shows us that these are the churches. John describes Jesus as in control and communing with His churches, with His people. These words holding and right hand are terms to designate power and control. It's also something that Jesus does continually. He doesn't have it at certain moments and loses it at certain moments. No, this is something that Jesus has at all times. He is always in control of His church. Now these words, walk among, signify that Jesus is present with His people constantly. Even today, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is present with us, with His people. And Jesus knows what's going on in our church family. This is Jesus' church. It's not mine. It's not Pastor Ryan's. It's not our deacon's. It's not yours. It's Jesus' church. And this week I was, uh, I was reading through some stuff and they were talking about, there was an article that was put out, I think uh, by the New York Times, or I can't remember which, who put it out, but someone wrote the, uh, the danger of uh, doing Elf on a Shelf. I don't know if many of you do, uh, did Elf on a Shelf this previous year, but they were talking about the dangers of teaching children that, that there is an omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful being who is watching over them. 
and how that could be dangerous for how they grow up. Now, if they're worried about Elf on a Shelf, I think they should be worried about Jesus, right? If they're really worried about that, they would be really worried that Jesus is in control and communing with His people. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's going on. right? He knows what's going on in our church. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what goes on between us as church members. He knows our lives and our ministry together. If Jesus is always watching and always with us, shouldn't this bring assurance to our lives? That Jesus is actually here with His people. He's in control. No matter what happens, shouldn't this bring assurance to our hearts today? Be assured that Jesus is in control. No matter the things that happened this week, what happened in 2021, what may happen in 2022, Jesus is in control. And if we rest on that truth, then we can be assured of Him as our Lord. If Jesus is always watching and always with us, shouldn't it also bring responsibility? Shouldn't it also bring responsibility? That we come to His church as His people to do what? To make His name famous among the nations. That we don't come here to insulate ourselves and have a great time, but we come here to be encouraged and challenged, to be filled up every week so that we can go out into our neighborhoods, out into our schools, out into our jobs, out into our hobbies, so that we are making the name of Jesus more famous than ours. So that we are impacting our world. That's the responsibility of being a part of Jesus' church, of being a part of Jesus' family brings. The work of Jesus in His church and for His church should motivate us to keep the gospel at the center of everything we do. If this is His church, if we are His people, then His gospel must reign supreme in everything that we do. Now, let's hear what Jesus has to say about the church at Ephesus. We come to the second action. Jesus commends His church. Jesus commends His church. Now, Jesus is going to provide three points of praise for His church. Look down there at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. Jesus is pleased with Ephesus, the church there. He's pleased with their deeds, their dedication, and their doctrine. First, let's look at how Jesus, what He says. He says, He knows. Again, speaking to how He's in control. He knows of their labor, meaning their strenuous work. The kind of work that makes you sleep well at night. The kind of work that you give blood, sweat, and tears to. And these people, Jesus says, He knows their labor. He knows the work they have put in. He knows that they have given their hands and their feet and their bodies to the work of Jesus. And He says, I know this. I know this about you. Secondly, Jesus says that He knows their dedication. Look at how John explains uh, in Jesus' words how he explains this in verse 3. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name and you have not grown weary. They have persevered, they have preserved or remained in the faith during hard times. 
This could be difficult times. This could be suffering. This could be sickness. This could be persecution. These people have endured for Christ. And then he says, it's even this idea that you have tolerated these things, these hardships for Christ. You will not, as we'll talk about in a second, you will not tolerate evil people, but you will tolerate hardship for who? For Jesus. You have tolerated hardship for Jesus. And they have not uh, shrugged off the responsibility of following Christ, but they bear it gladly with zeal and joy. This is the kind of people that you want next to you in hardship. If cancer comes, if financial crisis comes, these are the people that we want around us. They have not forsaken Jesus even in hardships. They are dedicated to Him. And thirdly, though, Jesus says that He knows their doctrine. Look how Jesus describes this in the second half of verse 2. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. They don't just take people at their word or at their winsomeness. They, they test them. They examine. Now, I don't know if they gave them a pop quiz. I don't know how they actually did that. But they actually look at their lives and they say, that doesn't match up with what you're saying. So Jesus says, I know of your doctrine. I know that you are making sure what people say lines up with what I have said. But Jesus goes even further about this. And how they have right doctrine. Look there, verse 6. Yet you, yet you do have this. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus says, you detest what I hate. You are in line with what I've called you to be in line with. Now, the Nicolaitans were a group of people who would actually condone sinful practices like adultery and greed, and the list goes on. And these are okay for you to be involved in, which would go against the New Testament and would go against what Jesus says. And also, there's a, there's a distinct uh, note here that I think is important for us. In the same way that in just a moment, Jesus says that you've lost your first love. The, the Nicolaitans are a sect of people who followed one of the first seven deacons in Acts 6. He is one that has actually, he fell away from the faith. And they're following him. And the church of Ephesus says, no, we reject that. We believe the gospel and we believe God's word. The church in Ephesus protects doctrine diligently. They hold Jesus as Lord. They, talk, they hold sin in, in a right way that this is against God's standards. This is the kind of church, right? From this account, this is the kind of church you would want to go to. If you Googled them and you found their church website, these are the things that they would list on their website. We're dedicated to, to, to deeds and to dedication and to doctrine. And you would be like, this is the kind of people I want to be with. But this is not what Jesus says. Which brings us to our third action. Jesus confronts his church. Look there at verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. With all that the Ephesians have right, they are missing the most important thing. Love. 
They have all the right things. They check all the boxes except one. Except love. What does Paul say? You can have the greatest gifts. You can have all the things in the world. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If you do not have love, you are a noisy gong. You're a noisy gong. No one wants to be around you no matter what you have. And even though this church looked good on the outside, there was a nasty disease running inside of this church body. The church did not have a head problem. They got the Bible studies right. They got their doctrine right. They had the best programs. If you signed up, it was fantastic. It was executed. They didn't have a head problem, though. They had a heart problem. That is, their motivations and priorities were totally messed up. They had a motivation and priority problem. Now, there's some argument to what is this first love? What is this first love that Jesus is saying? Many have said it's their original love for each other. Others have said their love for God. Some have said the love for Christ or the love for the gospel. I don't think that we should actually untangle those. I think they're all connected. I think here, they're talking about you have lost your love for God, the gospel Christ, you've left it. Because it's the gospel that enables us to love God because God first loved us and God sending Christ and Christ being the Lord of our lives. All of this is entangled here. All of this is in view for our Lord. But notice here, this first love was not lost. Rather, the church left it. It left its first love. A decision was made to leave. The message translation by Eugene Peterson says this, you have walked away. You have turned your back on Christ, the gospel and God. Let that sober us today. That the church that Paul wrote to and really commended in a lot of ways. Just years later, you've left your, Jesus says, not John, not Paul. Jesus says, you have lost your first love. What is love though? Let me give you an illustration. When Ash and I were first dating, what, it, what did that, that, uh, that first uh, action that we, it, it drove us together, right? Like we, were, we were talking on the phone, we were texting, we were doing all those things because the passion, the love there was pushing us into wanting to be together all the time. Right? We wanted to write notes to each other, we wanted to buy gifts, we wanted to go on dates, Right? That was there. You could ask her. This is, this is what categorized our first season of dating. But what if I came home and, and uh, wouldn't, wouldn't actually, you know, it'll be six years of marriage for us in a couple weeks, and I never said I love you anymore. I never told her how I cared for her, or that I'm thankful for her. And let's say Ashley comes to me one day and she says, I don't feel loved. I don't think we're on the same page. And what if I, being dumb, said, well, if you ever feel like I don't love you, just look at this house, look at, 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 the, at the checking account, look at you staying at home, look at our children. Don't ever doubt that I love you. Ladies, how would that go? Not very good, would it? 
it would not go very well. Because, why? Just because I'm doing things for Ashley or for our family doesn't mean that they are the love, the center of what I'm doing. That's what Jesus is saying. That you may say that you have all the right things, but you, you've not actually loved me. Don't mistake doing things for someone with loving someone. And look, we have to get doctrine right. I've told you, if I start preaching falsehood and heresy, you, you remove me. Pastor Ryan has the, has the authority and he's going to do that if I start doing that. We have, must get doctrine right. We must give our lives for the gospel. We must endure hardship. But if we don't center the gospel and love Jesus, then we're not going to be very useful to the Lord because we're not loving Him. We're not loving Him. Right now, at least in some of, of our church culture, we have, we're banging on the door of doctrine. And we must get it right. We must get it right. But we must not lose the fact that that doctrine, if it only stays up here and doesn't come down here, we're in the same spot that the church in Ephesus was. It needs to make six inches travel to our hearts so that we love Jesus more than anything else. And perhaps Ephesus had succeeded in all kinds of things, many areas. But the maintenance of that success had become more important than the motivation to serve and love Jesus. The motivation to, to keep the success and keep things going and do right deeds and have right doctrine and, and have the dedication they needed had been placed over and above their Lord and love for Him and His gospel. In Galatians 5, verse 6, Paul says this, For in Christ... Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Paul is speaking in the context of talking about how religiosity and legalism is not going to save you. The only thing that will save you is a correct gospel and submitting your life to Jesus. This is what Paul says. Faith, that Jesus is Lord, submitting our lives to Him, Working through love. At the end of the day, our motivations matter. Why we do things matters. The ends do not always justify the means. We come here and we can have the best music, the best programs, the best outreach in Wake Forest and Youngsville. We can have the best in the state. But if we do not love Christ and His gospel, then it will be for nothing. We must always keep the gospel centered here. And right motivation leads to right priorities. Right motivation leads to right priorities. Right priorities matter. Right, mo right motivations lead us to holding Christ as at the center of our lives and as a church. Priorities matter. And they impact generations to come. Let me give you an example. Let's say that we make the gospel a second or third tier issue, third tier item for us, and we don't really talk about it as a church. 
What happens to the next generation? They don't really care about the gospel. What happens to the generation that follows after them? They're not going to hear the gospel because it wasn't cared for, because it wasn't preached, because it wasn't applied. And what happens to that fourth generation? They know nothing about the gospel or about Jesus. Church, our priorities matter. You have a world that is trying to conform you, whether you know it or not. And as the church, we must come and submit our lives to Jesus and to each other so that we are formed by loving Christ and His gospel. Parents, you must hold the gospel as a priority in your life. You must. If you do not, then it's easier for our kids. It doesn't mean that they won't. It means it's much easier for our children to then be able to walk away from the gospel because we have not prioritized it. As we talked about in Ephesians, the, the best thing that we can do, it's not, it's not teachers or coaches or youth pastors or whatever. The best thing that we can do for your children is for you to love Jesus with all your heart and for you to walk with Him, not in a flashy way, but to walk with Him, to act like He is a real person that matters that you love Him. Kids, this is an opportunity for you to watch your parents, to watch them love Jesus. They're not perfect, and they're not going to be perfect. and They're, they're going to mess up, and they're going to sin. But kids, it's an opportunity for you to watch how they prioritize the gospel so that you will see what does it look like to have a long life and actually walk with Jesus faithfully. Kids, do that. Parents, that means this is very important for us to keep Jesus at the center of what we do. Jesus, He confronts His church because they were not keeping the gospel center. They were not loving Him first and foremost. But in that confrontation, Jesus provides a course correction. Let's look at that fourth action. Jesus corrects His church. Look at verse 5. Remember then how far you've fallen... Repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus provides a course correction for the Ephesian church. He doesn't just scold them and walk away. He corrects them. He confronts them and then corrects them. And He provides a threefold plan for them to return to Him and to their first love. He says you need to remember, you need to repent, and you need to redo. First, he says you need to remember. Jesus tells them to remember. Remember what God has done in the gospel, through the gospel, for you. Remember where you've come from. Remember that you were dead in your sins, but you were raised to new life. Remembrance is a key action for the Christian life. So much so that here, Jesus says it should be continual. It's not just a one-time act. This word remember is an ongoing display. It's repeated. And it's also prescribed in the Old Testament a lot. God would do something for His people. He would respond in a certain way. He would provide salvation. He would show Himself mighty. And what would God do? What would He tell the, His people to do? He would say, build an altar there. Why? Why should you build an altar? When you pass by, you will remember what I have done for you. We don't build altars anymore. But we need to remember in the same way. We need to remember what Christ has done for us. So every time 
Every time that we find an opportunity to see what God has done, share it. Talk about it. God answered this prayer request. God has shown me through His Word how I can live differently. God has empowered me. His Spirit has made me and enabled me to actually defeat this sin that has been plaguing my life. Maybe it's writing a sticky note on the mirror. Maybe it's putting a note on your phone. Maybe it's having a picture of something that reminds you of what God has done. Find ways to remember what God has done and what He's brought you through. Secondly, Jesus corrects them by saying you need to repent. The next step in the plan is for them to repent. This means to change our minds, to change the direction of our destination. This repentance, though, is conditional on the action of remembering. What does that mean? Our remembering is where God has brought us from, will help us empower where God is leading us to. If we don't remember what God has done, it's going to be much more difficult to repent. We need to change our mind. Meaning that we need to confess to the Lord that we are sinful and change the direction we're going. I found this quote this week. It says, change your mind, thinking that good deeds are meritous and earn God's favor. Change your mind, thinking that labor is no substitute for love. Change your mind so that purity, you understand, purity is no substitute for passion. These are no substitute for devotion. May our first love be what drives us to remember and to repent. And then what does Jesus say? He says to do the works. So He tells us to redo the things that we did at first. We are to remember, repent, and redo. We are to return to the works that we did at first. Can you remember, if you're a believer today, can you remember how you spent your time when you first came to Christ? For me, I was at the church all the time. I was there doing stuff. But at the end of the day, I was loving God. I was loving people. I was giving my life to to Christ in a way that was honoring to Him. I was talking about Him. I was serving because of Christ. This is the kind of work that Jesus speaks of. It's kingdom focused and others focused. When we love Jesus, we keep the gospel centered of who we are, right? Then that love flows out of us into action, right? First, going back to our first love actually motivates us to actually live rightly. It motivates us to action. After we end this series, we're going to be in the book of James together, and that's what James talks about, faith leading to action. And that's that's what Jesus says, that you need to remember, repent, and redo. redo. Why? Because it's what should flow out of us. That when we love Christ, it flows from us. If we find ourselves in this situation, walking away from our first love, maybe thinking that something is better than the gospel, may we remember, may we repent together, and then may we redo the works that God put in us first. Why, though? Why should we do this? Why should we actually listen to Christ's correction plan? Look there in verse 5. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This plan should be followed because there are consequences. 
Jesus takes this offense very seriously. Removing the lampstand from Ephesus would be just. It would be removing their influence in the city. It would be removing their authority. It would be removing their usefulness. It would be removing their witness as a church body. For any church in any area or any time, this should give us significant pause. That we stop and we, we think about what Jesus is saying right here. Neither history, what our church has done, nor activity is sufficient to demand the continued blessings of God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happened here three years ago, four years ago. It doesn't matter what happened here 40 years ago. What matters is are we loving Christ today? Are we motivated to love Christ more today than we did yesterday? Again, don't mistake movement for achievement. God nor His kingdom is in danger of, of a church being closed. God will continue His work. So may we join Him in what He's doing. We must always keep the gospel at the center of our church and in focus. Now, Jesus provided a plan of correction so that we can love Him and be rekindled so that the gospel can be centered. Let's see how he ends this conversation. Now look there at verse 7. It brings us to our fifth action. Jesus challenges his church. Look there at verse 7. For anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To conclude Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus and to the others, Jesus he gives seven challenges to them. He gets them to open their eyes. He provides a new perspective for them. He calls us to think about our future with Him. He says, let anyone who hears is a summons to anyone in the church who will hear and respond and bring the church back, who can turn the tide and bring the church back to loving Jesus. The one who hears God's Word can infuse love into the church body. Just one person. And for the one who hears, the one who responds, Jesus describes them as what? As conquerors. That is, they are overcomers. I think this is related to Revelation 12, where John is describing a, a cosmic battle. And it is this battle. And how is it won, though? How is Revelation 12 1? It says, By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The word of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? The blood of the Lamb is Jesus' blood on the cross shed for you and me. What is the word of testimony? It speaks to that we are submitting our lives to Christ. Romans 10 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no swords or weapons or guns or bombs. There's nothing that can save you from the battle that's coming when Jesus comes to remake this world to bring newness back to it. There's only one thing that's going to make a difference. The blood of Jesus. And have you confessed that that blood is what can make you righteous and holy? that blood can change you and transform you, that you submit your life to Jesus. 
those who do conquer through the blood and work of Jesus will not, will not just win the battle. What does Jesus say? They will be given eternal life. They will be able to eat. I mean, they will have access to eternal life. And they will have access to God forever. Our God doesn't just send Christ to make us righteous and holy. Thank God that He does that. That He, he doesn't just send Christ to make us in right relationship with Him and each other. This God also does all of that so that we can be brought into His presence. So that we can be a part of His family. Not just here, but forever. You have a God that went at great lengths to send His own Son so that you can be brought back into His presence. You can be brought back into His family. This is why loving Jesus and keeping the gospel centered is so important for us. That we confess this gospel together. Because we have a God who is working. We join Him. And at some point in the future, God is going to bring us back into His presence. And we're going to enjoy that forever. So when we keep the gospel at the center of our church, we keep Jesus at the center of our church. The gospel shows us who Jesus truly is and who we truly are. That God shows us grace despite our sin. That in Jesus, God loved us first and He enables us to love each other. I pray this morning that you see how Jesus responds to His church. Yes, He confronts the church. But He brings a plan to them. He brings newness and life to them. He calls out sin, but He brings them hope that you can be made right by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony in Christ. May we cherish this gospel together. Will you pray with me? God, I ask today that you would, would you keep the gospel centered in our lives? That you would help us remember what you've done in times together. Would we enjoy life, but we would also say what you've done for us, how you saved us. Would we share about what you're doing now in our lives so that we're encouraged, so that we remember what you've done. God, I pray that although this is a hard word, it was a hard word for the church at Ephesus to hear, it serves as a warning to us today. I don't think that we're in this danger right now, but we could be in the future. So God, would you help us protect us to keep the gospel at the center of everything we do? Would we hold a right confession of this gospel that is only by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony that brings us into the presence of God forever. We ask these in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.